Welcome to the Evolution of Innovation podcast, supplying you with the tools and insights to access your business's full potential. All right, I'd like to welcome Nathan Eloquin to the podcast here. Nathan, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. And I, I really am excited to have you here because you and I have been talking about this much larger picture uh, as it relates to innovation and company culture, which is how are you going to upskill and reskill and cause innovation in the space of learning and development? So uh, just for any listeners, you know, the, the IMF is forecasting that we will be losing 75 million jobs very soon due to automation, AI, but that's not actually a really bleak picture. What's expected is that there's also going to be the creation of over 95 million new jobs that we actually can't fully imagine just yet. So what this really starts to set us up with is how are we going to educate, train, develop, upskill, and reskill all of these people for a world that's hard for a lot of people to even imagine right now. And uh, the reason I'm excited to have you on here is that you really have been on the cutting edge of the cutting edge in what it looks like to actually onboard people at Google into their cloud service division, which is also one of the most cutting edge places that has the most unknowns and most ambiguities. And uh, that you really actually had to figure this out from the ground up and really design something that was going to have a great impact so that employees were brought into this environment. And you had some really interesting uh, 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 insights and obviously some lessons learned from, from what you've been doing there. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Sean. Uh, that entire experience of rediscovering almost on a weekly basis how to improve upon something for which there is no common standard, there is no uh, leading player that has all the things figured out. It, it was. It, it continues to be the most fascinating part of the work that I do, and is always the thing I enjoy the most. So, how do we solve these kinds of problems? That's essentially what my life's career will be about. Now, just so people can get a little sense of the the program is designed so that people are coming into Google as new employees. Okay. They're kind of like fresh spring chickens, yeah. and there's this yep. huge ecosystem. Uh, now at Google, you really did have the premium tools right at your disposal to use. So that's obviously a benefit that not a lot of companies have, but if you move beyond the tech, what were some of the challenges that you knew you were facing when you were trying to get people to essentially be innovative, proactive, and, and the kind of employees are going to continue to drive future value? Yeah, that actually, you phrased it really well, uh, because Enabling people with the self-confidence, which in the instructional design field, we sometimes call self-efficacy, an understanding of your own ability and an understanding of where you need to continue growing and developing. So giving them that gives them what you just mentioned, this proactive attitude towards learning and development. And uh, so a little bit more context on the program I worked for, the cloud technical residency would have been labeled two years ago when I started with them. They would have been labeled at Google as what's called an incubations program which is to say a startup. We're gonna give it a shot. We're gonna put some people on the project. We're gonna let it run for six months, a year, two years, who knows, and see if this is providing enough value as to the company to justify scaling it up and you know, adding additional cohorts and new hires and different locations. And uh, spoiler alert, it absolutely succeeded. Uh, the output, these uh, new hires and the way that they were providing instant high level value even only a year after this training program was so successful that they essentially quadrupled its size and expanded internationally, had a lot of really exciting things happen. And I was a part of a team of three people. Uh, two people were, let's call them the direct managers. They were more responsible for really helping the individuals that were part of these 25 people cohorts. So we bring in a group of 25, there'd be one person that was kind of leading over that group. And then we would rotate with new cohorts every six months or so. And that was essentially how the program worked. My job was as the person who did a lot of the other things, like designing the training procedure, designing what we call the evaluative process, how we measure their success and their growth and their satisfaction and all those other things. So, so I got to deal with what I thought was the most interesting part, which was how do we make this program the kind of thing that will scale up, 
and that will bring in all these hires. And to kind of speak to what you were talking about with like these new uh, fresh chickens that are joining the coop here, these were college graduates, extremely talented. This was a very, very selective pool that, that Google has the luxury of pulling from. And they were brought to a physical single location in Austin, Texas, and joined at the same time, fresh out of college, often their first full-time job. Um, and their goal was in 12 weeks to be uh, skilled enough to be both a software engineer and a technical cloud consultant so that they could do three jobs simultaneously in a sort of a residency rotation pattern. They would be doing what we call customer engineering, which is a very technically enabled uh, cloud sales uh, auxiliary system, uh, professional services, which is consulting, and then the technical solutions engineering, which is support at a really high level. So in 12 weeks, we had to take them from, I am very smart and have a computer science degree, to I can be three different jobs, each of which pay you know almost six figures. Uh, all at once, I can do all of those things. And they would wrote, they would do a residency for about uh, nine months after that, after which they would get placed based on a Gale Shapley algorithm, just a, a, mar a true marriage matching algorithm where their preferences along with their manager's preferences that they rotated under would result in them being placed in one of those three roles that they performed as for some period of time during the residency. So it's, it's a fascinating program. The reason I explain all that is because the challenges that I had to overcome, speaking to your question directly, were so many things at once. You have young people that are for the first time forging their understanding of self in the corporate world. What does it mean to feel like you're a part of a community, that you have opportunities for growth, that you're being respected as a human, not as just a computer or a machine? Um, the second thing is there's so much content and they, they not, are not only learning hard skills, they're also learning soft skills of you know, technical, uh, well, so there's sales and there's consulting and there's support. So what does it mean to help somebody with escalation management while at the same time, technical discovery? It, it's, it's, really, it's really like a big, big ask for these young hires. And then uh, coupled in all of that, we're trying to do it in a scalable way so that even if we bring in different cohorts at different locations with different managers, we can execute on that model over and over again. So we have to develop metrics. What does it look like to measure success? What are the goals for these learners when they're finished? And um, so I, I, should, I should pause so that I can make sure I'm actually providing a helpful response to your question. No, the, I think anybody listening to what you just said would say that is a, a Her Herculean task to take on. <laughs> like, where would you even start? And I think one of the first things that would be there for me is, well, what are your metrics so that you can even tell if what you're doing is even working? And you said, you know, yeah, obviously the, the technical skills maybe are more quantifiable, mm -hmm. but so much of what's important are these soft skills. So how did you approach that part? Yeah. So um, while lightly trading around, you know, Google secrets, uh, confidential sure, stuff, what I'll say is that people in this space, especially at fast moving tech giants, that kind of stuff, the way that they tend to lean heavily is mastery based learning. And you might even hear this in, you know, a K-12 or university teaching setting. But the reason it is so helpful for adult learners, especially those in the workplace doing on the job training, um, the difference between mastery-based learning and what you would expect from, I don't know, a third grade classroom is that in the traditional model of education, where a lot of K-12 students go, the way that you graduate, move from one grade to another, is you live a year. You, you age a year, and you don't fail, and then you get to move to the next grade. Congratulations. Uh, maybe there's a test that you need to take, uh, depending on what state you're in or what requirements there are. But generally speaking, you just don't fail and you get to move to the next grade. Mastery-based learning is all about demonstrable, observable, objective achievements. And so the, the requirement for a designer like myself in that space is how concretely can you describe what would be an abstract idea so that you can evaluate that and move them on as soon as they've demonstrated they can do that thing. A simple example, let's say that we're training sales engineers and they really need to understand the product in order to demo it with the customer. Uh, the goal would be the abstract concept. The engineer needs to understand the product's features and competitive offerings. But that's not observable, that's not demonstrable. So the learning objective or the mastery or the competency is the phrase we typically use would be something like uh, the sales engineer 
can demonstrate products X and Y in Z setting and be able to communicate offerings A and B. And so you, you like, what does that mean? You develop a slight rubric where you can just give it a yes, no, or maybe like a one through five about how well they could do that. And then when it is time for them to demonstrate that they can uh, have that skill, I think the ultimate goal here for a company like Google or for others that are trying to develop this learning is to be as clear as possible because there's there's a really, really cool trick in instructional design that I guess I'll, I'll refer to as inductive or backwards design. You should always begin with the end of the mind. So if you've got a job that you're training people to work in, you're hiring new sales engineers, they're going to be in this job when they're done with the training program. Start with accomplished sales engineers. Go to the gurus, the experts, and say, okay, on a piece of paper, can you write down for me the most important goals, the things that they should be able to achieve and do and demonstrate at the end of their program before they enter the workforce or before they're working full-time or before they're on you know, a professional queue with high-profile clients, whatever. You get the experts, the subject matter experts who define those. You convert those into observable behavior. So you're going backwards. Mm -hmm. You take that observable behavior and you turn them into test questions. That's your exam. And an exam can be an interview or a project or a presentation or a written exam. But right. when we say exam, it really is, it's the show me your stuff. Right. Prove, prove that you Demonstrate that you've about. learned, exactly. accomplished, up-leveled. Up yeah. Yep. And then... And and I'll I'll use a phrase that I think teachers you know uh, cringe at when they when they hear this. But then once you've made the test, teach to the test. <laughs> Ideally, you've made the test so so specific to the place where those learners are going to go in the workplace that if you spend the rest of your effort developing the kinds of training that will enable them to ace the test, you are inadvertently or indirectly training them to ace the job. And then you just work backwards from there all the way to the beginning where you are communicating the, that goal to the learner. And then they will really feel that it's not this arbitrary compliance training module that I'm being forced to complete. Right. Instead, it's like, oh, wow, this is like the best sales engineers in the world are telling me that I need to be able to do these things. So, of course, I'm going to pick up this training material and take it seriously. It is built for me to succeed. And that's that's the tone you can take for any role across any industry in really going all the way down to the youngest that people can understand their own learning, which is like 12, 10. I mean, you really can go pretty young with all of this, but it's especially useful for professional development and corporate training processes. Now, when you talk about being able to scale that, obviously uh, the products, the technology is going to continue to evolve over time. So it inherent in the design process, it sounds like you're really isolating out these frameworks that can be grafted onto the next iteration of the technology, the next product, yes. knowing that there's always going to be the people who are out in front demonstrating and finding out best practices so that you can continue to apply that methodology three years down the road when the offerings are slightly different. Yeah, that is... Wow, is that important? I mean, especially if you work in tech where the answer to the question on the exam is changing as frequently as every six weeks. Right. I, I think that if I could ask for a paradigm shift in people who are designing these training programs at companies, what you would expect, or at least what you visualize is, okay, I have a new hire. They're new to the company. I'm going to give them a week, six weeks, 12 weeks of training, and then they will be done and then managers will pay lip service to continued education. They'll, they'll say, well, we have this video from you know eight months ago from a conference that you can go and watch and that will teach you the new rollouts we're, we're introducing into this product because it's really, really difficult to create training content actively that is always up to date. If right. you put in the production quality of videos or voiceovers or even just multiple choice quizzes, with PDFs or white papers, that is already so much work to keep it up to date with what's happening that it introduces um, what, what I refer to as documentation profanity. Um, uh, so so there's, there's sanctified and profane, there's sacred and profane documentation. And one thing that I think Google does so incredibly well and is I, I am now realizing so difficult to try to communicate to people who work in other cultures, other company cultures, is how important it is to uh, norm as a culture to inculcate every single person on your entire network of, co of colleagues to actively deprecate documents that are out of date 
and ensure that there is a confidence in the uh, datedness, in the up-to-dateness of all materials that are relevant to them. So Google has an internal ability to allow users to make um, their go links, is what we call them. They're, mm -hmm. they're references that just redirect you to another page. But what happens is you make a go link that is really easy to remember. So if I if I develop a new program and I this little piece of training is something that I know we're going to use, I might say go slash sales engineering and then maybe the tag for my program, the CTR. So that's the tag. But then my responsibility is to ensure that that link always points to something that is up to date, which is fine because let's say that I make an entirely new piece of training and I want it to replace the old one. The, the Go link system makes it so easy for me to just point it to a new document. Mm -hmm. And so now people are always, always going to just that link. And then what you do on top of that, you can get a little meta with it. You can make a doc that has links to all of the other links. And therefore you have one place that you can always go to. And it helps to have search engines and internal documentation and maybe like some bookmarks in your tab bar. But the, the ultimate point that I'm trying to make is that if a company norms among all their employees, and it really has to be all of them, otherwise you lose confidence in that and you start not, uh, you start forcing yourself to do extra work and double checking the up-to-dateness of, of certain files. If you can get people to be that consistent with the way that they treat information and they treat it as sacred, then what will happen is it changes the paradigm from I as your manager or your supervisor need to train you. It turns it into what I we enjoyed in, at Google all the time, which was we're going to get you just the bare minimum and we're going to put a human in your life that will really understand, almost like an academic advisor, be able mm -hmm. to communicate with you on emotional, verbal terms, the things that you're struggling with or that you need to improve on. But then everything else is up to you. Once you understand the places for your own growth and self-development, we have this library that is so easy to access, that is so consistently updated, that is so well-documented that you will find exactly what you're looking for every single time you go there. And so training programs start from 18 weeks and then we're like, we don't need 18 weeks. Let's, let's go down to 12 or let's go down to 10. Honestly, they can teach themselves these other two weeks where the content, let's go down to eight. And we're saving so much money on the front end and saving a lot of people's time, you know, their bandwidth by working on together as a culture documenting well. And what I've learned with the new hires at Google is that they've gotten very skilled at being able to curate their own content and then they just share that curation with each other. So it's a dividend that pays itself right. indefinitely going forward because the next hire will just get the list of links from the previous hire, all of which are being updated in real time. And that, so. Now, I, now, I think a lot, a lot of, of people might be like, that's great for Google. <laughs> <laughs> I, my place can't even manage to get everybody to you know, use the same email system or, or whatever they're doing in yeah. that, in that case. I mean, I, above, dealt with clients actually having to put in knowledge management systems so that somebody can be responsible to getting the knowledge at the fingertips of everybody without having uh, or without requiring that buy-in or uh, the technical expectation of people who just are not going to do that. So, uh, you know, for anybody listening, uh, knowledge management systems out there, and there's some very good, good ones that I've been working with that uh, can, can really help you kind of corral all of that stuff so that employees don't spend so much time looking for stuff. Um, but th there's another aspect though that I wanted to touch on because it's very easy for us to get technical about the right metrics and engineering of the, the pedagogy, the, all of this stuff. But you also really have emphasized the soft skills side of things and what it takes to create the culture amongst people so that they are comfortable in the unknown that they are becoming active learners. And you really were stressing even vulnerability and like kind of having to lay the groundwork for what our cultural norms are going to be. So I'd love to hear you describe what that process was like and what that aspect of the, the kind of uh, culture training was. Yeah. Uh, wow. There, there, I think there are two really big, big things that of course branch off into plenty of other best practices. But uh, the first one is, to treat training as a trade. Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm boiling it down to a word, it is when you're talking about people that work for you or with you and you're trying to train them, 
you need to sell them on the use of their time and energy. It is so important to set expectations in that way. Um, I had a teacher, I think this was like my ninth grade teacher who spent her very first class teaching us that the role of teachers, first and foremost, is to sell you on the idea of learning. And this just blew my mind. I was like 14 years old. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wait, what? The teacher's not just like talking about Achilles or the Iliad or whatever. Like, no, she was, she was like, the, the teacher's foremost is to sell you on the idea of learning these things. And the currency that you're spending obviously isn't money, although in some cases it is. Uh, it's time and it's attention and it's energy. And that really shook up the way that I, I thought about school and then mm-hmm. later training because I... We need to treat adults like adults. And if they are in the workplace, yeah, a paycheck might make it feel like it's required for them to get the whatever training or compliance done because you tell them to as their manager or as their supervisor. But if they if they don't buy into the concept of that training, then they will put in the absolute bare minimum and you'll be worrying more about, I don't know, creating tests that have an auto screening mechanic or that have a, you know, a a patrol system or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, When instead you could be working on getting them to the point where they believe in the cause and can go and find their own ways of studying the material. So I I have a framework for this that I really have heavily emphasized in my personal work, which I refer to as the five pillars of instructional expectations. And if if I were breaking that down, how do you get to the point where you achieve that buy-in? It's, pretty simple. I'm going to have to kind of like visually show it right here because mm-hmm. it's a lot easier for me to point the fingers. Um, the first is you should know what the goal of the learning is. I mean, I mean, you would be surprised how many, you know, K-12 teachers or I really like college professors can't necessarily communicate their goals for the learner. What should they be able to do? We talked about that earlier with like the learning objectives and the mastery-based yep. learning. Number two, they should be able to communicate how they will get the, the student, the learner to achieve that goal. So what is your method of instruction, your pedagogy? Explain how it gets them to the goal. And that's where a lot of instructional design practices stop. After those first two steps, we were like, okay, cool. I've got it. I've got my goals and I've got my plan to get them to the goals. But the final three have everything to do with achieving buy-in. Number three, you need to make part of your curriculum teaching the learner what their goals are. That's technically a syllabus. I mean, that's technically like giving them the projection for the training process they're going to be a part of. But boy, do people overlook that stuff. A lot of people don't know what they're trying to achieve. And if you can at least show them that, that gives them something to look forward to. Number four, and this is a little harder, is you need to teach them, number two, how that training material will actually get them to achieve those goals. So this points to this and this points Mm -hmm. to this. And then the final one is, and this is so hard, you need to get them to believe in you as the way of getting them there. That is all soft skills. That is developing rapport. That is being open and honest. That is being transparent in the workplace. One of the things that surprised me the most about Google was that, I I mean, I'll be honest, there's so many words that you hear, Noogler and Googliness. You think like, it it gives me like flashbacks of 1984 and Newspeak (laughs) and, you know, like, you know, what, 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 what is this world? Are they programming me to think in a certain way? And the thing that I was genuinely very taken aback uh, as a result of and really appreciated was that this is not lip service. They genuinely care about being open about their process and talking openly. Now, this is you know for hires, those within the company, sure. about flaws or shortcomings or ways that they're improving. And my team leaned into this hard. There were three of us. And so with these cohorts of 25 coming in on a you know a semesterly basis and trying to get them to the point where they were training, we would be very open about things that we were reconsidering or honestly, that didn't work. We're going to scrap it entirely or uh, we're open to your feedback. And it is really hard to communicate how much of an impact that had on their proactivity, their initiative, and their buy-in. Um, it, it seems so simple, but just extending that degree of respect to say, hey, we're not perfect. Let us know if we can change things. And then actually responding to it, acknowledging verbally, making sure that they're aware that you're making changes because of their feedback. That gets them so invested, not only in their own learning, but, and this was huge, this was game-changing for our program. Those who are finishing the program because they got to be the guinea pigs, the early, you know, mm-hmm. the pioneers, the trailblazers, 
they wanted to make the program better for the next them that was going to be in there through right. six months or a year from now. And they would come back a year later and be instructors. They would be mentors. They would serve on panels or as judges or in role-playing scenarios. We got to have these earlier uh, uh, residents, these learners, so invested in the program that they wanted to improve upon it for the sake of others. And that gets people, it's not just the basic level of engagement that I think a lot of people dream of. It's the next level of engagement where yeah. you're thinking about the development of the training itself, which makes it pay dividends going forward. And so um, I guess instilling that level of agency and ownership has to do with this, these sort of these five pillars. If you can get to that point, um, you are, I mean, it's the best, it's the best of the best, yeah. it's the best you can hope for. And even if you don't get the buy-in, these first four steps ensure that your instruction is not wasting their time. That at the yeah. very least, you are making the most of the resources you're spending to train these people. Well, and that, so that gets into when you have a, a cohort of new hires, obviously they're going to be eager. They're much more malleable and the onboarding process needs to be looked at as its own access point to building culture and creating self-motivated learners, cultures of innovation. But then most companies who are now looking at, oh my God, I'm, I'm behind on my learning and development strategy. Our technology is not up to par. How do we approach this? You then have all of the rest of the employees who are already busy. They're in their jobs. They're the, they're yeah. not being incentivized to learn. So it's kind of like, so what about that? Great. The newbies so are going to be naturally yeah. motivated, but what do we do with the rest of the organization here? And so what kind of um, best practices or pitfalls to avoid would you say is important in that scenario? That is, that is, uh, that is such a hard question. I, I, like, um, I like hard questions. Good. Uh, me too. <laughs> me too. Uh, yeah, so the, the most interesting thing that I that my brain goes to there is what's their incentive, what's their motivation yep. for even going through this new content. And my assumption is that it's because someone told them to. It feels like the majority of the time these individuals are going to have to learn a new process because the company is rolling out a new service for customers, and someone's got to know how to be able to implement or consult on that. Therefore, your boss says that boss says learn how this works and be able to communicate it. And there's, uh, <laughs> that's hard. Uh, I guess, uh, let me frame it in a more neutral terms. Um, the most important thing I think about with reskilling, with getting people who are already at the company that are experienced in one thing and they're pivoting to something else, the most important thing to acknowledge on the front end is what is their motivation for engaging with yeah. the content? And we have to be realistic. We can't just say because they love the company. It might be true, but like, we, we really need to think about what's not statistically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so then the idea is, is there a way for us to make it not a part of a checklist that they must complete because it's a task, but instead as a rounding of their own professional portfolio that is extending their resume or their experience, not because we're pretending they're going to get a pay raise or they're going to make a lateral move or a promotion in another company, but instead because it will make them the kind of thought leader that this company needs to succeed in the future. And again, skirting around some of the confidential stuff from Google, I think one of the things that we really lean into is uh, having clear terms for what might otherwise be described as soft skills or semi-soft skills, mm -hmm. kind of that middle ground between you know, soft and hard skills. Um, we have really clear terms for exactly what those particular skills mean and what they look like. And it is a regular practice for managers to be meeting with the people that report to them and talking about what the goals are that they themselves, the, the employee in this case, have for their own development. One of the things that I got to be a part of was guiding the conversation for these new hires that yes, they are new in this case, but ultimately they would be working in one role. Mm -hmm. And then as the residency dictates, they would rotate from that role to a different role for several months. And so their entire way of working would have to shift. And what we would have them do is reflect openly with their direct reporting manager what they wanted to achieve or grow in themselves as a result of that experience. And I can see that working for reskilling as well. Mm -hmm. If the culture has clarified what these terms mean, then they'll say, okay, you, 
what are some of the things that you would feel most interested in developing or growing? And so you sow that seed early. Then when there is a need to reskill employees that currently exist at the company, ideally you already have information about the things that your employees care about and you are correctly sourcing those employees to pivot to that new program because you know in general terms the things that they care about despite the fact that they might have the same job titles. And so it's it can't be solved overnight. It's the kind of thing you should do over time. But if you've been doing that work on the front end, you are greatly increasing the odds that they will be willing to pivot. And then at that point, there is not much of a difference, the way I see it, there's not much difference between reskilling and upskilling a new hire at that moment, right. because it's, it's still a new thing they have to learn. The way that you designed the training is the same as what I described previously. It's really just making sure that they're bought in and they know where they can access the best resources for them to get to that new skill level. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and that's essentially really turning it over to them and giving them the opportunity versus dictating. And, and one of the things yes. you and I talk <laughs> yes. about is, uh, you know, I, I work on both the tech and the implementation, but so many times you go into a company and it's flooded with so many different platforms and technologies. And often they were just bought to solve a problem in a short term without any long-term vision. So yep. now when people want to take on this learning and development, okay, everybody knows that this is a long-term investment and it's, there's some great technology out here, but putting the technology in and then expecting it to work never seems to work. <laughs> so yeah. what, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this relationship between technology and pedagogy or uh, what does it actually take to make that technology successful and where are the most common pitfalls you witness? Goodness. I, I, I fear for companies that have, you know, several thousand or hundred employees that believe that buying a really fancy piece of technology will solve all their problems and then they implement it. And unfortunately, that expectation itself can often be the downfall for that company because people think, oh, well, this technology looks so great. Its interface is awesome. The features are so robust and it's cheap uh, or it's easy to implement. That's surely going to do it. And so that indirectly causes them not to invest in a lot of the skills that go into designing the way that it affects those. Everything that I've described in this interview before this point in time, you'll notice have like nothing to do with the technology right. that is implemented, except I guess the thing about GoLinks and how they work, I, the really truly it has a lot more to do with uh, clearly communicated expectations, which I talked about with those five pillars, with the... Um, the culture and the rapport of those who are guiding the learning experience. They may not be like teachers in a traditional sense, but they're the ones that are determining and curating the content that you're going to be consuming that are your direct reporting managers for you to reflect your, you know, on your learning experience with like those individuals, their, their rapport, their understanding, their role is, is really important. So when I think about people who think of technology or like companies, I think of this technology as a silver bullet. I guess I would say, I would say this. Um, so Google cloud, cloud technical residency, which you would think is, you know, surely since everyone at Google is on the G suite of products and we've got some cutting edge, like engineering teams and stuff like that, we would have the most technically, technologically enabled training program of all time. Maybe it's like, we put them into little, like the, I don't know if you've seen like the nap pods at Google, <laughs> yeah. but like we put them in and they put a helmet just, on. You just put they, the wires in the head and you get them. To, pro, yeah, yeah, we just like pump it directly into their system. That and, you know, LaCroix probably. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, the, the, the way that we did our training was uh, a slide deck in Google Slides. And then, and, and I guess I'll share this much. This is not confidential. We had self-paced training and I made a spreadsheet where each column was one of the 25 residents. And then they would click the check mark on a row that was a piece of training content they needed to finish that week. I mean, it, it is really low tech if you think about it. And they, they would just go in and they could see it and they could check it and they would move on. But what made it really work was not the fact that I had this really fancy learning management system to drive all of their behavior. It was actually... Uh, I'll give a few examples. Very first day of many of these hires, first jobs at Google in this program, we made, we, we had an entire session on communicating expectations within the program. 
For example, we had an entire segment where we communicated that during these 12 weeks of learning, nothing that you do will directly impact your final job offer or where you can make lateral movements or whatever. This is your time to fail. We are going to empower you with mentors that you can access freely if you wish. We are going to put you into small groups. You can learn about dynamically engaging with others and trying to problem solve together. We're going to challenge you by giving you extremely difficult problems to solve and then kind of just expecting you to deliver on that with no stakes. So it's all of the, all of the um, stimuli of the real workplace, right. but with this safety net that this 12-week training program provided. But my main point is not that we had a fancy spreadsheet because we didn't. Um, it was that we spent, we, we had a great deal of thought that went into how we communicated the expectations and then how we delivered on those. Yeah. So for one of the things that ended up being really uh, profitable, really helpful for these learners was we designed case study role play scenarios. And this was just a few people, myself and some subject matter experts at Google, sitting down writing not a script but a like a general premise the case itself and then we created these really clear rubrics for what the learners were expected to do and that was it it was a google doc and we handed it to them and we said okay on friday in your calendars at 2 p.m you're gonna present and so during these scheduled times work together you have all of the internal documentation at your disposal and that goes back to the thing i was saying earlier about sacred documentation if the learners are confident that anything and everything they find in that server is up to date and helpful and reliable for their learning and their development. They can teach themselves. It's actually like they're so capable of teaching themselves. If you hired them, it's because they have the skills to do the job. And if they have the skills to do the job, then they have the skills to teach themselves the intricacies. Yeah. Whereas you give them the context and the fundamentals and maybe a bit of the social cultural stuff. Um, so yeah, Google's, even my program, even at Google, relatively low tech, but we had the resources and the time to plan out how the experience was for the learners. And then we doubled down on the vulnerability aspect by yep. openly reflecting on our process and giving them the chance on a weekly basis to provide a satisfaction survey about every single training session and what things they thought they needed to change. We sometimes had an open forum just to talk about it. So like, it wasn't even you know necessarily a little written form that we put into a like a box. It was something that people were openly discussing as a group. And I really, really think it caused them to buy in. And since they're, you know, older than 10, that buy-in is all you need at that point, because then they're ending up teaching themselves. They know what the goal is. They know what the end goal of the program is. Well, and that's so. where we, we kind of keep coming back to that theme of how do you get people to have buy-in and have ownership? And one of the, you know, working with learning management systems and tends to set up uh, hierarchy of here's the expert you're now supposed to go through. And a lot of, uh, a lot of corporate learning is checking a lot of boxes and it's not stimulating. It's not, uh, interesting, but so I loved your idea of how to create courses that lay out broad objectives and kind of the heuristics. And here's where our destination is knowing that especially younger people are probably your best internet researchers to get your best resources and that there's an iterative way for them to actually bring their skills to actually refine the course materials. So I'd, I'd love to uh, uh, hear uh, you yeah, break down you're, that. You're speaking my language. Uh, I So what's funny is my, my background, I, I went to a, a high school that it was a private school that employed what's called the classical model of education. And it, all the, the oversimplification is that it really emphasized the self knowing the self, um, being able to communicate and argue points of truth or of values or of policies. And the way that, and one of the things that it was really inspired by is something that is called the Oxford model, the Oxford model of learning from Oxford University. Sure. And they today, even today, still do a pretty similar version of what used to happen 200 years ago, which is that learning was not, you go to a class and then you pass the class and then you get credits and then you get a degree if you have enough credits for you know an engineering degree. Instead, you would meet with an advisor and you would say, these are the things that I really wanna learn. And the advisor would say, yeah, um, based on our conversations that we have on a biweekly basis, I think you should attend this lecture. I think you need to read these two books. I think you need to find this project and you need to make it. You need to finish this project and then check in with me as you're working on it. 
it was so much more about sort of curating and a personalized learning program. And the, re the reason it worked is because not a lot of people get into Oxford. And so you have few advisors for few students and right. it works to scale. But the cool thing is that technology nowadays allows us to do that through algorithm. We really do have incredible platforms that can curate a lot of the content for you based on really complex things like uh, you do a pre-assessment and Khan Academy knows exactly what subjects you need extra help on. So then they bring that material to you and then you can complete it and you can kind of complete that loop of learning. In the training workplace, um, I, I the way that the Oxford learning model would be employed would be to make it as easy as possible for learners to, uh, it's what you were saying, young learners are going to be the best at finding the best resources for them. All you need is someone overseeing that to confirm and approve that certain resources are indeed in alignment with the goals of the program, because students sometimes don't know that. They don't yeah. know whether it actually is inching them towards the actual end goal, even if it looks like it. Um, and then some kind of system for enabling this thing to be self-sufficient over time. Um, if I might be a little caustic for a second, I, I think it's borderline arrogant for most teachers and even professors to believe that they are the best disseminators or communicators of content to students. If a statistics professor at a university, they might be, you know, the cat's pajamas, they might be the absolute best person to teach you statistics, but I bet you that it's much more likely that there's a video on YouTube that does it better. And even if that professor is that good, YouTube videos allows you to pause, rewind, fast forward, zoom in, save and come back later. It is the, the conveniences for individualized learning are so great in things like what the internet provides that I feel like the role of teachers in the future has to shift away from disseminators of content, the ones that are lecturing, um, but needs to move more towards engineers or curators of learning. Yep. like those Oxford advisors that we talked about. Hey, I think you need to read this book. And I think you and I need to talk about this project. Um, and so if corporate training leaders are going to learn from those best practices that we're discovering in traditional education, it would be something like this. You need to have a culture that is open to engaging with materials that you yourself did not make. And you should build or use a platform that makes it easy for you to store and access those pieces of learning so that people are incentivized to share them with each other. And I mean, in my mind, I keep calling it like the Reddit of learning yeah. because my, my, my picture is a platform where professor has a course and then it's just uh, you know an up-down vote of which things are most useful for particular units of content. And the professor can be a moderator. They can just like delete a post if they don't think it's helpful. They can they can have their own textbook at the you know as like in a pinned message or a prime spot on the page. But otherwise, students are going to be the best. What once they we talked about those five pillars. Once they understand the goal of instruction, and to an extent the intent the professor has of getting them to that goal, they can find the way to achieve this goal that isn't necessarily the curriculum that you prescribe for them. And very often it will be better for them. And I think that's true for the training workplace. Well, too. and especially uh, the spectrum of topics where they're new topics, they're constantly developing. There's a lot of conflicting viewpoints and conversations. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm working with a, a really brilliant LMS that has a whole social media uh, function put into it where you can post and, and really yeah. piloting a program where, and this is more around, uh, race. Uh, th there's a lot of topics where people uh, feel obligated to come up with a position and then lock mm. it in and create a course around it on something that's so fluid and dynamic where we're creating language for it. So what we've really been looking at is what are the big questions to ask? And ultimately the skill set for the students from whether it's this topic or any topic moving forward is do they actually have the skills to engage in an inquiry and actually mm -hmm. process multiple points of view. So what we're looking at in this case is, well, send those students out, have them go find YouTube conversations between uh, two different intellectuals debating the topic and one maybe saying something incendiary, but then watch how the other person is interacting. Like that might be yeah. something that a student comes across that didn't fall into the professor's 
uh, preparation when they built this curriculum five years yep. ago. And that really, I think that approach on some of these um, more fluid topics that are evolving quickly really can engage the students, not in just absorbing information, but engaging in an iterative process of thinking through any topic. Yeah. Actually, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up, say, the this race class example and the different perspectives, because, yeah, if, if we're, especially if we're talking, I'll use your language, these more fluid topics, the if you achieve this mm -hmm. uh, relationship with the learner and they understand the goal, provided they, at a fundamental level, believe or agree with the goal, right? If they completely disagree, this is, this will never work. Right. But nothing <laughs> else would anyways. But assuming that they do agree with the goal, um, something like race uh, will touch people in such different ways because we are different, have different backgrounds and experiences, and they will feel a genuine responsibility and ownership over shaping the way that they engage with those learning goals of getting to the place where they can communicate and understand those things. And indirectly, that teaches them some lessons about civil discourse. How do we have different approaches to learning these things and can negotiate and discuss those differences? And historiography, what does it mean to have different resources document or have journalistic integrity on different topics in different ways? And how do we reconcile that? And those are skills that you are indirectly empowering the learner to start developing in themselves if you are, for lack of a better phrase, making them find the textbook themselves. Because exactly. it's indirectly teaching them that there is no textbook. There's no like one textbook. So we are training you to understand that the real world is not that simple and you are responsible if you care about achieving these learning goals of finding the resources that can help shape your worldview one step at a time, not you know from one source of truth that stems everything else. Uh, I think that is a much more sophisticated way to teach. It's harder for the student, um, to be fair, but it is one easier for the teacher, weirdly enough, which I think is interesting. Maybe if they if you teach them, them actually how to set that up correctly. Right. True. Correct. Yes. I doing. Okay. So going to the, the five pillars that I mentioned, that is hard. Uh, right. That requires a lot of thoughtfulness, but in terms of like upkeep and tedium and, you know, manual tasks, it is way easier to manage. You are doing much less in the way of handholding for, right. you know, 30 students or 500 students. If you're a freshman university professor, instead you are simply designing a Rube Goldberg machine that is empowering, and they have to be adult learners. That's been of my course. caveat throughout all yeah. of this. Adult learners to be able to pilot their own experience with the guidance of your goal setting and the guidance of your advising. Um, so that's, that's I guess that's how I would go about teaching people to use those platforms for their thing. Yeah, and, and, and really, I think if you look at a, a company that's kind of like down the middle of the road. They're not, they're not Google. They're not uh, maybe a highly tech enabled company. They're obviously going to deal with things like compliance. Compliance is going to yep. be compliance. Can you make it better? Can you make it more interesting? But then there's going to be people's really needing to incentivize and, and actually build into their evaluations and their managers training that they are advancing their learning in the topics that the company has identified is going to be crucial for its future success. So really, I think what we're kind of now looking at is kind of this kind of different silos or different um, uh, ranges of courses, some of which are going to take care of straight up compliance. How do you do future learnings? And then how do you develop these soft skills along the way? And I think there's just now so many new avenues. And I think it requires us to kind of loosen up our understanding of learning from what we grew up with, which was actually designed to create a workforce, a compliant workforce right. for a, right. a, a, an era that is already almost bygone to really develop the kind of um, iterative skills and ideation skills and the collaborative and co-creative skills that are going to be required because we're about to enter an era where nobody's going to have any hard and fast answers. And the more comfortable that people can develop themselves to be with ambiguity the more companies will naturally be able to be responsive and, and iterative and innovative in the face of new challenges. Yeah. yeah. Uh, throughout your description right there at the end of the ambiguity of 
sort of the new labor market. I was thinking about the, the IMF statements and about how many people don't even can't even begin to define what these new jobs are going to look like. And I, I wish I could say that this was incredibly original. Um, the reality is that there was an entire segment on John Oliver last week tonight where he talks about this exact thing, uh, automation of jobs and what the future of the economy will look like for particular jobs. And Generally speaking, if I'm simplifying, I'm not going to use this exact language, but it'll be pretty close. If I'm ex if I'm simplifying what I think the best prepared young person would be for the future of the workforce, they uh, would be skilled in this. They would have critical thinking. They would have adaptive interpersonal problem solving for an ambiguous environment. It is it is all question marks across the yep. board. And what that means, and I and I actually I, a part of me that was that was trained in the classical model of education kind of secretly loves this because what it means is that instead of making sure that everyone knows how to use the quadratic formula, what it is incentivizing the teaching and instruction of younger people or even people that are just entering the workforce, it's less about hyper-specific and specialized technical processes and fields and whatever. And it's more about can you create someone? Can you instill someone with um, social and emotional intelligence that are excellent communicators, that can critically analyze complex problems in nuanced ways, and live and thrive in an environment that presents a lot of ambiguity, where your day-to-day -day job is rarely going to be the same thing on a day-to-day -day basis? And so if you can have all of those things in an employee, I, I think I think every manager that's the dream. If that is the person that that they get to manage, it means that they are capable of being plugged in into a lot of high impact environments. If you're missing even one of those things, then you would probably have to be plugged into uh, I'm not going to call it a dead end job, but a job that is much more linear in its process. Yep. And so it would make you less capable of pivoting to something based on the highest needs of the company. And goodness, did I learn that with the cloud technical residency? I mean, these new hires, only 22 or 23 years old, were some of the most sought after at Google because they were being trained with the thought process of somebody with five years experience. They were, they were being trained, almost groomed to be uh, thought leaders in the cloud mm. space. But their skill set was versatile enough to plug them into any of the three major verticals within cloud, sales, support, and, uh, and consulting. And that is so alluring. Um, but I, I, and again, doesn't have to be at Google. I think that's a model that I think a lot of managers could really latch onto as their holy grail, as, as the goal for them to shoot for. Um, so critical thinking with adaptive interpersonal problem solving skills for ambiguous environments. That's, that's what I think. I mean, if I'm being lazy, that's how I would define every single new job that will be created forever uh into the future at least for the near future well i think so. you might have some people uh jotting down notes i think you just gave a pretty powerful cheat sheet there for anybody trying to figure out how they're gonna uh mobilize and, and develop a strategy moving forward so uh so nathan thank you so much for taking the time out today it's been such a uh thought-provoking and, and fun conversation I, I i know we're kind of like probably opened up a few more cans of worms than we're going to close today. But um, uh, hope to have you back on again and uh, best of luck on uh, the next chapter here. Absolutely. This is I, this is such a fascinating, uh, wonderfully complex topic for which there's no real true answer. But I guess that's the point, right? We're all learning as we move along. And I love being able to be here with you, Sean. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. Have a great day. If you'd like to learn more about our workshops or consulting and innovation strategy services, please visit us at evolutionofinnovation.com or email us at hello at evolutionofinnovation.com.